0: Well, thank you for that, Ratnaguna. He's not so bad himself, is he? Uh, What a lovely introduction. How sweet. Thank you so much. It's really nice to be here. I've not been in Manchester for at least ten years. Um, And it's very good to be here again. My socks are now drying on a radiator downstairs. Uh, So I really feel like I've been welcomed and brought into your bosom in every possible way. And, yeah, I'm going to share some stories, really, about my um, my time with Banty, particularly in India, which you know, will include perhaps a few little side elements of my, my time with Banty generally. Um, but, yeah, I'm going to start with, I don't know whether to start. I almost imagined, you know, I, you, you have to imagine maybe at the beginning it's a slideshow. And, you know, imagine you're looking at the first slide in a slideshow. Um and it 's ten o'clock at night we 're on Pune station it 's probably I think it 's late December. It might be early January. There are several hundred people there, and there 's a blackout. You know anyone who 's been to India knows. Uh, Well, actually, I'm talking about 1981, 82, that that, that transition. Certainly in those days, blackouts were quite regular in in Indian cities. I mean, electricity was either sort of accidental or rationed one way or the other. You didn't always enjoy electricity. And so there we are, several hundred people. It's nighttime and it's a, a big, rowdy crowd. And the Deccan Queen comes in from mumbai or bombay as it was then big blinding searchlight on the front of a steam train as this colossus pulls into pune station and as it comes in the crowd start to cheer and shout and chant until eventually it stops and they all cluster around a carriage where this englishman in his mid fifties in robes but draped in a mohair shawl is trying to get out the plane, um, out, out of the train, while simultaneously being garlanded by anyone who can get close to him as he tries to get down the steps of the train, and in this way, Sankaracharya arrives in Pune to begin a tour in 1981-82, and the crowd accompany him, cheering and chanting all the way to the waiting room where there were perhaps 20, 30 women all wearing almost almost kind of ethereal, diaphanous blue and white saris, waving trays of flower petals and lights and water in front of him as he comes through the waiting room. And a military man, who was standing behind me, witnessing this. In my mind, he he hits me on the shoulder with his sort of stick thing. I don't think he actually did, but he he had that kind of man. He said, who is that man? (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, how do I begin to explain? Who was that man? Who was this extraordinary figure being greeted in this way at 10, 11 o'clock at night on a dark station in India? We made our way through the station to the taxi rank where two taxi drivers at the the head of the queue literally descended into a punch-up, fighting over the honour of taking this obvious celebrity, strange though he seemed to them, away from the station. And in the end, a compromise was arrived at, whereby one taxi took Sangharachita, the other taxi took his luggage. And the rest of us followed in rickshaws so this was this was how sangharachata arrived in india and it was my first experience my first sighting of sangharachata in his indian incarnation in in the indian world and it was for somebody who'd never been to india before i'd only been there a few days before sangharachata arrived you know i i was still on the biggest high i think of my life and actually um the fact is I shouldn't have been there in fact I was being very naughty so I'll give you a tiny bit of background and luckily Ratnaguna has filled some of that in for me but I'll just say I got involved with the movement in 1970 that's when I first met Sangharachita and whatever it was about this sort of extraordinary but very strange man Um, like a lot of people I was captivated by him how a man of his kind of eccentricity um, I use that sort of word affectionately but you know a man in his sort of whatever he would have been mid to late 40s who wore crumpled Buddhist robes but heavy leather shoes great long hair, puzzle rings um, usually a kind of maybe slightly stained mustard coloured pullover somewhere in there you know who had this rather distant manner, but who could open his mouth and, and and talk about the Dharma in a way that just put you in touch with something that you had always known, always wanted to hear affirmed. You know, that somehow this extraordinary figure, you know, had the knack of of getting people involved, you know, whatever their age, whatever their background. So I got involved with him and his pals, I got involved in his sangha and in uh, in 1974, January 74, I was ordained. And as luck or fate would have it, and I'll be honest, when I got ordained, like possibly a few other people of my generation, I didn't really know what I was letting myself in for. You know, I, I knew it was what we did. You know, if you were kind of one of the gang that, that's what you did yes you did want to make a statement you did want to kind of commit yourself though I have to report that I did hear a conversation I overheard a conversation between two people once at Pundarika the centre that uh, Ratnaguna referred to somebody was complaining about Lokometra who was known for being quite hardline and quite demanding and someone said Deva Mitra, I wish, uh, Loka Mitra is always going on about commitment. Where's your commitment? It makes me sick. And the other person said, don't worry, it's just a phase, like mindfulness. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not lying. So did I know what I was doing when I got ordained? Did any of us know what we were doing when, when we got ordained in 1973, 74? Well, we went from the shrine room where we'd had our public ordination that was myself, Loka Mitra, Deva Mitra and Arya Mitra and a woman called Jinamata who some years later resigned Um, but we went straight from the shrine room into another room at Aryatara Community in Purley, and had the first convention of the Western Buddhist Order and in I think two days it might have been three the 23, 24 of us who were there sitting round the walls of a room with Banti in an armchair in the middle, invented Shabda, we invented the order meta, and Banti put it to us that he wouldn't be doing all the teaching. He wouldn't be the kind of the head of our centre. You know, that we should all be doing more teaching and consider, you know, taking it on in quite a big way. We should consider starting centres ourselves. And over the course of those days spun the vision of a movement, you know, uh, even a worldwide movement. He just shared with us his vision, his ambition, his you know, his, 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 his life's work, in a way, that was to be. And, uh, well, how could you resist? <laughs> Within something like six months, as Ratnagun has said, I, I'd left my job. Um, and on the night I, I wrote a letter of, uh, of resignation to the BBC, which is where I worked, um Loka Mitra and i drove to have dinner with banti and um Mitra, as we after we'd arrived had take, taken off our coats and exchanged courtesies um Loka Mitra said malga has got some news for you banti i said i've just resigned from the bbc i'm going to uh, start a publishing house of some sort and i thought banti would hug me you know, that perhaps we'd open a vein together. and you know. He said, oh dear, <laughs> how are you going to support yourself? And I said, well, I don't know, but I've got savings from the BBC and I'm sure we'll, we'll, I'll find a way. And he said, but you do realise that this could be quite a long-term commitment of you know, maybe two, even three years. It was 25 years. <laughs> but, you know, I left my job. I published Sangharakshita's works for all these years. I was, in many ways, a good boy. You know, as Ratnaguna says, you know, I, I, if Banti said jump, I said how, hi. I brought up his books, the magazines, Mitratar. When Banti said he wanted somebody to move down to Pearlie Croydon and see if a centre could happen you know off I went and and we did it and then he said now I want you to move to the London Buddhist Centre and be part of that so I did it. I'd I'd done everything you know I was one of those people who kind of um, just did what Bhante asked me to do and then one day while I was living at the London Buddhist Centre and publishing I had a letter from Lokomitra saying is coming to India he's going to give a lot of talks and we need somebody competent to record them It's amazing, it says something about the movement in those days. The Locomitra thought that he'd have to get somebody from England who'd been trained at the BBC to operate a tape recorder. (laughs) But there you go, that's how it was. And I thought, wow, that would be fantastic, you know, to be in India. And it was wanting to see India, though I have to confess I had never been able to eat even a Vesta curry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, anyone remember what they were? (laughs) Uh, To to see the Indian world, which was still very new. Lokomitra had only been there by then three years, maybe four. And in particular, I wanted to see Bhante in his Indian incarnation. I mean, the banty I'd met was this slightly reserved, always mindful, always considered, always rational person, you know, who'd say things like, oh dear, how are you going to support yourself? And I, I had this idea that he was a different person in India. The, 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 um, the cover blurb of The Three Jewels, the original Heinemann edition of The Three Jewels, um, talked about how his, you know, half his life was in, in India. And I, I kind of thought in India you get a different banty. But the Bhante I knew tried to stop me from going to India when he heard that I'd made this uh, arrangement to go to India and to cover his, his tour. He actually managed to find me while I was spending a weekend with my parents. The phone rang at my parents' house, and it was Banty, saying, I don't think you should go. I mean, his focus on Winter's publications was so complete. You know, he was nervous about the idea of me taking myself away for a while. But i booked my ticket, and more importantly, I'd booked my heart. And, uh, you know, it was the... First, and one of the very, very few times I've gone against, uh, against Banti 's wishes. So there I was, and there I was the next morning, when Banti woke up in India. You know he'd arrived the day before, he'd flown into India, he'd ridden the train from Bombay to, to Pune and been greeted in this extraordinary way. And there he was on his. the next morning. He'd got up at the usual time. He had done his usual business of writing some poetry and then reading, then reading some material and doing some editing and some writing. And there he was at breakfast. I mean, you wouldn't have known that anything had happened. You'd think he was still at home in, in Padmaloka. Um, he's a great believer in the regular life. He, he's described the regular life as an indirect method of elevating consciousness and it was extraordinary to see it in operation that morning and i couldn't believe that someone who had uh, just arrived in india just that but to have arrived in that way you know with the jet lag and everything else and there he was you know the absolutely recognizable banti um and i had to go into his room at some point i knocked on his door went in there maybe with some tea And he gave me a cheerful smile, a sort of cheerful smile, and he said, I've accustomed myself to the fact that you're here. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he was absolutely warm, friendly. You wouldn't have known he had any you know qualms whatsoever you know he, he was absolutely accepting and friendly of me while I was there when we got back he did have other things to say but you know that's another story for another day but no he was he was he was just a wonderful companion but what was interesting was to see you know how he just clicked you know without a pause in, in into his own regular routine he knows what works for him and always has done People would arrive. We were staying in an apartment in, 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 in Pune. People started to arrive and I could hear him, you know, just talking Hindi, uh, meeting people who he hadn't seen for, for many years, some of whom he's, he'd known as, as young students back in the 50s. People coming, bringing flowers, bringing garlands, people coming to see him and getting down on their knees and, you know, and touching his feet. Uh, you know, it was, it was another world. It was seeing Banti in another world, but the Banti was the Banti that I was familiar with. It was I, I don't know what I'd been expecting, um, but I didn't suddenly see some wild-eyed hippie or um, anything else. It was, it was just that reasonable, focused, collected, mindful man that I was useful. But in this extraordinary situation, within a few days... He was giving his first talks, the first ones being in Pune, and I had my chance to see what happened when Banti gave a talk. You know the, 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 talk would, the first talks were given in a Buddhist area of, of Pune, an area where there were three distinct Buddhist localities all grouped together, and in preparation for his visit, people had painted motifs. they'd, they'd spread fresh cow dung onto the roads leading to the place where he was going to give his talk and in the this lovely rich brown sort of lillonium effect that you get from freshly spread and dried cow dung. In India, you know, that with chalk they'd drawn mandalas and designs and all kinds of things. So his his path to the place where he gave the talk, you know, was adorned in this kind of way. There were fairy lights hanging from buildings. There were big tinny loudspeakers blaring out f- uh, at the beginning at, while they were setting it up, um, Hindi pop music and you know, uh, Bollywood pop music. But later on, these extraordinary chants, Buddhist chants, the Mangala Sutta, the Tiratna Vandana, the Precepts, the Refugees, usually sung by one of these, I assume they're women singers, You know, with voices that can break glass, mm. You know these very, very high-pitched voices that would sort of cut through the air for miles, um, and the crowd would gather. And the crowds, you know, were thousands. You know, thousands of people would come to hear, you know, Banti give give those talks. A few days later, we went to a town called Panchkani, a place where I was to spend quite a lot of time many years later. Um, where he gave his first sort of out-of-town talk. Panchgani is a hill station about an hour and a half from, from Pune, halfway, well, you know, just about an hour and a half from, from Pune. Um, and there's a Buddhist community there, quite small and quite poor. The man who organised the talk, uh, Mr. Kumble, a very common name uh, you know, among, among these people, was a very, very old man, enormous Um, I arrived by bus and he was waiting at the bus stop and it was this wonderfully touching Indian moment of this huge man who must have been well into his 70s but looked much, much older. With a scarf tied round his head, with a knot on top, you know, which is not uncommon in India, because of course for them it was midwinter. You know, for me it felt like Mediterranean summer. You know, but he was, you know, had the scarf on against the cold, standing there, holding hands with another man, waiting for the bus. You know, just something I. It was the first time I'd seen that sort of scene. And Mister Cumbly looked after us. You know, he looked after Banti and his retinue, the whatever it was, seven, eight, nine of us. Who you know were traveling with Banty on that day and took us all to lunch you know we, we were taken to a restaurant in, in in Panchgani, where you know it was a fairly cheap restaurant, but there we were you know sitting, eating our um eating our rice plate um, and as we left, you know good conversation, but as we left, you know Mr. Cumbley stood in the door, you know just sort of you know saying goodbye to us and as as as, uh, as i said goodbye to him you know i, I started to say you know I, I started to thank him profusely because i'd heard during the meal that he was extremely poor and lived in a shack made out of biscuit tins and raffia and polythene you know, he was that poor and yet he'd spent all this money on us so i was being really profuse in my thanks who's a New Zealander who was an Anagarika in robes and who'd been living in India for a year or so, if not more, tapped me on the shoulder and said, shut up. (laughs) And so I did. And we got out and he said, you you mustn't do that because you're robbing him of his merit. You know, it was something I'd not encountered before. Because Mr. Cumbly, you know, like the other people in the Buddhist locality in Panchgani and the localities in Pune, you know, was one of these people who had converted to Buddhism back in the 50s under the influence of, of Dr. Ambedkar. Um, you know, his whole notion of merit came partly from a Hindu background and partly from. Uh, the education that he and many of the formerly untouchable, so-called untouchable Buddhists, who'd converted to Buddhism, partly as a result of the education they'd received from some of the Buddhist monks who passed through their, 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 their towns, you know, who, who would talk very much about notions of merit, particularly if merit could be accrued by feeding a monk, um, <laughs> And this was something that Sangrecha had a lot to say about. But in case you don't know, um, for the sake of those of you who don't know, very briefly, the background to this whole tour, the whole situation, was that in India, you know, for many, many hundreds, if not thousands of years, you know, a, a certain segment of the, po- of the population were considered to be untouchable, even in some cases, unseeable. To be absolutely beyond the pale, as a result of you know, actions in former lives. They were born into a certain family, into a certain caste, which placed them at the absolute bottom, even beneath the bottom of the Hindu social order. There was absolutely no notion of social mobility. If you were born an untouchable, you, you died one, and you were literally untouchable. Your touch was considered to be polluting, even contact with your shadow could be considered to be polluting. So obviously this had all kinds of ramifications, psychologically, socially, politically, economically. Um, you know, the untouchables, who, who constituted something like 10% of the Indian population, um, you know, were, were absolutely at the bottom, absolutely you know, poor with no hope. Now, by a series of flukes, which I I won't go into, one of their number, uh, Bimrao Ramji Ambedkar, managed to receive an education. In fact, not just an education, but an extraordinary level of education. He became a barrister, having been educated in India, in Germany, and America, at at Columbia, in New York City. Um, Returned to India you know, as a qualified barrister, and discovering that he was still treated by colleagues as an untouchable. People would literally, the clerks would literally throw books onto his desk if he asked for them, rather than come close to him. He realised that he couldn't simply devote his life to being a barrister for his own sake, and instead devoted his life to the uplift of his fellow so-called untouchables, and through his legal work, through activism, through campaigning, through education and through politics, you know, he rose to become the first law minister of India. When, when, when India was granted independence, Nero appointed him law minister and chairman of the committee that drafted the Indian constitution, which outlawed untouchability so quite an achievement and in all kinds of ways you know he had made a difference but he wasn't convinced he wasn't convinced that mere political change even even a constitution that outlawed untouchability would be enough to save the untouchables from the from the way other hindus treated them and so he decided that what they needed to do was leave the hindu fold altogether and for some While, I can't remember whether it was, I think it was years, he pondered long and deep on what the best thing to do would be. You know, there were obviously, you know, pressure groups. Some people thought he ought to become a communist, forsake religion altogether. The Muslims wanted him. You know, 10% of the Indian population would have added hugely to, uh, you know, the, the influence and power of the Muslim population. The Christians wanted him. The Buddhists weren't interested at all. Not at all. The established Buddhists, and there weren't many in India at that time, of course, because uh, Indi- Buddhism had died out there hundreds of years before, but there were a few in India and elsewhere, and they, they, they had no interest in, in, in this, this man and these rather poor people that he represented. However, from his reading of Buddhism and his own reflection, he came to the conclusion that that's what needed to be done, that the untouchables should convert en masse to Buddhism. Now, this is something that people at the time considered to be a purely political stunt. It... From my reading and from the reading of others, it, it's become increasingly clear that it wasn't, that he had the most extraordinary vision, the most extraordinary realisation for somebody who knew very little about Buddhism at first. He had to do his own study, who practised it very little, had met very few genuine Buddhists. He realised that if India was to change not just because it needed to change out of its old traditional Hindu model, but it actually needed to change as the modern world brought you know, new kinds of materialism, new kinds of division, inequality and so on to, to bear on society. It occurred to him that if the society was going to change, it had to begin with individuals It had to be as far-reaching and radical as that. And as he saw it, Buddhism offered a path of individual transformation. What an extraordinary thing for someone who devoted his life to kind of mass campaigning and politics to realise that if there was going to be any real change at the level of society, a society as huge and chaotic as India, that it had to come from individuals who were inspired you know, by something, you know, really important, really true. He used to talk a lot about liberty, fraternity, and equality. And one of one of his kind of oft quoted quotes is that you know people think I got this notion of liberty, fraternity, equality from the French Revolution. No, I didn't. I got it from my master, the Buddha. Now, he saw that the real roots of social change, transformation, had to come from the individual. While he was deciding what to do about, you know, how to convert, where to convert, whether Buddhism really was the answer, he met Bhante. I think Bhante made the contact. Bhante had read in newspapers that Ambedkar was considering Buddhism and made it his business to get in touch with him. And they met several times and had a series of conversations. You know, Ambedkar wanted to know, you know, well, what is Buddhism? What does it teach? Why are the bhikkhus that I meet, the monks that I meet in India, seemingly so lazy, so apathetic, even so ignorant about Buddhism? You know, they they had a lot of, you know, quite important and deep conversations. And in the end, Dr. Ambedkar asked Bhante if he would conduct his conversion ceremony. Well, this was going to be an enormous event. You know, the plan was that he was going to convert publicly and then Oversee himself the mass conversion of several hundred thousand people. And he asked Sangharachita to conduct the ceremony. Banti refused on the grounds that he was unknown and that it would be more helpful for the new Buddhists, if the ceremony had been conducted by somebody with a little bit more institutional kudos. So he suggested that his own preceptor, Uchandra Mani Mahatera, should conduct the ceremony. And that's what happened. So on October the 14th, 1956, a date that every Buddhist in India uh, can reel off, uh, Dr. Ambedkar and I think 400,000 of his followers in an enormous um, stadium, Converted to Buddhism, and so it began the, the the movement of mass conversion, which was to continue. Others were, to, were were to convert in the coming weeks, months, and years, and it's still happening. But without their leader, without Ambedkar, because six weeks later he died. Um, he was very old; he was winding down. The last time Banti met him. Uh, Ambedkar could hardly lift his head off the table. They were sitting at a table together, and I can remember uh, Banti describing how Ambedka was wearing this pith helmet. <laughs> must have been quite a sight. But he, his head was literally on the table, and he sort of would just lift it a bit and just talk really quietly. You know, he was just absolutely losing, you know, losing his, his vital powers. And he died, and he died, on a day when Banty happened to be in Nagpur, which was the place where the mass conversion ceremony had taken place. It was the, the ground zero of the mass conversion movement. And there was Banti there on the very day, on the very night, where these hundreds of thousands of people were reeling in shock that they'd lost. I mean, somebody they considered and still consider to be their absolute saviour. So in the next few days Banti gave I think 35 talks in 3 days travelling all over Nagpur standing on the seat of a rickshaw to address crowds just doing what he could to in a way reassure them that you know they could still practice the dharma that it was still something worth doing you know and doing what he could to inject, you know, a bit of optimism, a bit of confidence into people at a time, you know, which for them was was nothing short of an absolute calamity. And for the next few years, you know, between 1956 and, and 66, when Sangharachita returned to the UK, he would spend about half the year down on the plains, you know, because he was living up in Kalimpong on the, you know, the edge of the Himalayas. Um, Banti would spend six months of the year down on the plains teaching among the new Buddhists doing what he could to keep the movement alive to inspire people to, to educate them into the implications of, of what they'd done and he was one of the very few monks as, as I mentioned earlier there were several monks who'd passed through uh, towns where there were converts to Buddhism but they were more interested in being fed and made much of than in teaching the Dharma and truth be told there were a lot of them who didn't actually know much Dharma. Um, in banti 's opinion, quite a few of them were beggars who had, out of convenience, converted you know, to Buddhism and become monks so that they could get a, a free meal. Um, back in those days, in the eighties, I don't know about now. It may have it may have changed, but it, it, it was quite a you know, quite an oft. Um, talked about plank of our movement was you know that, that, that uh, what Banti had to offer and then subsequently what we had to offer to these people was really the Dharma for the first time many of them most of them had ever really heard it properly taught and they heard it being taught initially by Lokomitra you know a good friend of mine somebody who'd been ordained alongside me who during a, a visit to India to study yoga, had encountered the new Buddhist movement uh, and had sort of fallen in love with it, or fallen in love with the, with the necessity of uh, the job needing to be done, and had decided to devote himself to, to that work. And so I think it was in 1977 he moved out to India with um, a couple of friends uh, to work full-time and to see whether he could start a movement among these new Buddhists. Banti had been out there just once, once before the trip I accompanied him on, um, and he'd conducted a few ordinations. But the trip that uh, I was to witness uh, was his first really substantial visit, and the plan was to go all over Maharashtra, the state that included Nagpur, the the, you know, the the birthplace of the mass conversion movement, but also to visit some other towns. And so along the way, as well as visiting many, many towns in Pune, sorry, in, in Maharashtra, towns that tourists absolutely never go to and have never heard of, but we also went up to uh, to places in Rajasthan, up to Delhi, down to Hyderabad. You know, it was the most extraordinary trip. You know, in, I think... Altogether, Banty was in the country for a little less than three months, and we visited thirty cities. And Banty gave about thirty talks. And sometimes, you know, he'd give the talks um, in a big field, you know, that had been sort of cleared, or it might be in the sort of Maidan, the sort of square. Oh, it's funny; it's a word that's um, back in the news this week, isn't it? Uh, but in, in, in a Maidan, surrounded by you know, slum buildings with fairy lights hanging from them, huge crowds gathering. There was at least one talk on a traffic roundabout. You know, I I, I, I've, I can still see, you know, all these I mean, two or 3,000 people gathered in this circle of, of land, you know, with cars going round them and occasionally a bullet cart going right through the audience. Um, there was one evening where we were given, it was a concert hall, which could seat about 5,000 people. And we were all, you know, we we were to give the talks, and because Sangharacharya would give the main talk, but several of us would give little talks along the side as sort of supporting acts. Um, And and on this particular evening, we were all on the stage, you know, the crowd was gathering on the other side of the drapes. And, you know, sometimes when you're in a situation like that, there you are on the stage, you're, you know, you can't hear the audience, so you forget that you're in that kind of situation. We were just in this big room. There was Banti, there was me, Lokamitra Purna, and somebody while we were there, just waiting for the thing, the show to begin, sitting on thrones. There were about four thrones in a row. Banti, me, Lokamitra, you know, sitting on these thrones, and somebody arrived who'd just come from England. And he came in through the wings with mail. So, you know, we had nothing better to do, and I was handed an airmail letter. And it was from my partner of the time, who was telling me that she decided to do something with someone else. And I, <laughs> and I literally had this flimsy airmail letter in my hand, and I'd literally just read that sentence when the curtains opened. <laughs> <laughs> and there I was sitting on my throne with this letter a jaw sort of hitting the floor, and 5,000 people cheering. (laughs) That is one of my favorite memories. It was worth the pain to be able to tell you that story. (laughs) So we found ourselves in all these situations, you know, Banti giving a different talk every night. I thought he would do a sort of political stump speech. You know, he'd, every, we'd go to a different town and Banti would give the same talk every night. Not at all. You know, every night was a new talk about a, another subject and the tape recorders were whirring. And, you know, sooner or later the, all the talks found their way into you know, Hindi and Marathi magazines. The crowds would gather, you know, sometimes two thousand, sometimes five thousand. I think our biggest crowd was was about seven or eight thousand in, in a town called Nunded. Every talk would begin with lots of introductory speeches by politicians, by bhikkhus, by us. Mm-hmm. Um there'd be Innumerable garlands. You know, sometimes by the time Banti got up to talk, there would be a pile of garlands as high as himself. Because the idea was, someone would garland him, and he'd immediately, you know, he'd thank them and immediately take it off, and, and then somebody else would come. And meanwhile, there'd be a local figure, you know, somebody from the town, from the local Buddhist community, reading out the name. You know, Mister So and So is now going to, you know, give a garland on behalf of the such and such mandal, and there he go and Banti would give, you know, give his talk with a great pile of you know, sweet setting, uh, though often sometimes getting a bit acrid as the night went on, <laughs> garlands. I mean, it was just a wonderful thing to watch and to see Banti talking this language, the language of the Dhamma revolution, you know, the Dhamma grunty. Um, it was very different to the kind of talks I was used, used to. You know he, he, he would be, you know he would talk about the precepts, he'd talk about the six perfections. He talk about all kinds of things, but it was always in terms of how that would affect how you were as a husband, how you were as a wife, how you were as um, a member of your community. You know, one day over breakfast, I said, "So is the idea to sort of draw people in?" You know by talking about these things, and then, when they become metras we we start to talk about the true individual and you know all that stuff that we know that 's the real dharma and Banti laughed he said, well you know you're just coming from your 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 Western way of looking at things, you know as a Westerner, you think of yourself as a, as an individual or as a potential individual in India, you know people." Don't think of themselves in that way. You know, they think of themselves much more uh, as members of a community. Uh, you know, as, as social animals, and so you know, the Dharma for them has to be put in that language, and it's just as relevant, just as ra- as valid when when put in those terms as when put in the more psychological, individual terms that you're used to in the West, because that's what you you know can relate to. I mean, it kind of tied in with. You know, quite an important teaching that we'd um, devoted an issue of that magazine Mitratar to, which has you know, rejoices in the title uh, of the bitendential value of being. Hands up, anyone heard of it? Isn't that yay? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Who's in charge here? <laughs> it's a Germanic phrase. It was a phrase coined by um, Herbert Gunther um, in one of his books on, on um, the Abhidhamma uh, the Baiten, you know, as Banke explained it you know, if the attainment of enlightenment you know, is, in, involves the transcendence of the subject, object, self other di- dichotomy then one can equally work towards enlightenment by focusing on other as one can on self you know, one ought to be able to work, approach enlightenment mm-hmm. from either side so devoting your life to working for other could be just as valid a way of practicing the spiritual life as working on yourself. Which, of course, you know, to an audience of uh, members of the me generation, was quite shocking. But you know, here in India, you know, it was very much, in a way, the language of other, you know, of how to be a better member of society, how the precepts, how practicing the Dharma... Could, could help you to fulfill yourself in, in society, and yes, you know over time as as the order in India has matured, of course they, you know, a lot of Indian order members and mitras can speak our language as well, but I found that a really instructive and slightly humbling experience you know, that, that conversation with banti banti 's talks will always be preceded by processions of one kind or another often with mariachi bands often with crowds of people chanting and chanting by which I mean not melodic chanting but um, you know crowd chanting almost football crowd chanting often led by a leader you know somebody yelling out Dr Baba Seb Ambedkar So and everyone would yell Jai So or something like that you know victory to Dr Ambedkar sometimes if you and those of us who were new to it would get a kick out of this. It's an awful thing to say. You know, you would inject into your talk some particularly flattering remark about Dr. Ambedkar because you knew if you got it right, if you hit the right note, you know, someone in the crowd would start one of those chants. You know, and, you know, I have to be honest, you know. Um, you know, one likes to think that one wasn't sort of seduced by the... Possibilities, but occasionally one was. But no, it would be so touching to see that. And the thing was, um, yeah, Doctor Ambedkar was the key. You know, Doctor Ambedkar was always always a picture of Doctor Ambedkar as there is today. You know, on on the shrine, and it would always be garlanded before. You know, a program, before before a talk. You know, he, he was the key to everything, the key to our effectiveness. He was the door through which we got into that world, and he was the door through which the individuals in that world made a connection with the Dharma. So, you know, Ambedkar was there, the politicians would be there too, sometimes, not often, but if we couldn't stop them, there'd always be a politician trying to exploit the situation. There would again, you know, be be often ladies with their trays of arity, you know, waving petals and lights in front of Banty. You know, it would be quite interesting because, you know, you can see if you can work this one out. Sometimes, you know, I'd watch Banty approaching. You know the the the, the, the you know the, the stage, and there'd be these people waving these lights. You know all these women in their saris, looking so graceful, so beautiful. And as Banty passed me, he'd say, Bodhi, I hope you're going to tell the women in England about this." Yeah. And then the next day, we'd be driving somewhere, and we'd pass some roadworks, and there'd be all these women with pickaxes or you know trays of you know bowls of cement on their heads. And Banty would say, "Nagabodhi, I hope you're going to tell the women in England about this. <laughs> <laughs> <So> <laughs> well, I've told you. <laughs> I've done my job. <laughs> you can work out what he meant. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, it was It was just wonderful to watch, wonderful to witness, and wonderful sometimes to see the sort of the rhythm that would be set up between Banti and his translator, you know Dmarakshta Kirti, sometimes Chandra Bodhi, you know Banti would do a sentence and or even half a sentence, and the translator you know, would do a sentence and you know something that could maybe seem to be a bit jerky and laborious wasn 't there could be a wonderful sort of Collaborative rhythm set up between Banti and his translator, or, the, or others of us. Once we got into the rhythm, it was it was a lovely experience. What you couldn't help noticing sometimes was that you'd say something like, um, "You know, the third precept, you know, is 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 about sexual misconduct or whatever, whatever it was." You'd you'd just give some teaching, and the translator somehow you'd hear Doctor Baba Sebambedka. You hadn't mentioned Doctor. <laughs> 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 But somehow he found his way into the translation. And in the end, you know, you just knew to trust the translator. They knew their business. But it, it, it was just a wonderful thing to, to, to work that closely with someone, uh, which over the course of the days and the weeks, as we traveled together and, you know, crashed out in various places together, you know, be, became very, very close friendships. I mean, we were, we'd arrive. I don't think ever in a hotel, sometimes in what are known as government rest homes. You know, places on the edge of towns where government, uh, civil servants basically, are put up. You know, we, we, we'd get two rooms, one for Banty and one for the rest of us. And sometimes there would be 20 of the rest of us, <laughs> all squeezed together like sardines in a room, you know, just living together, you know, sleeping in a great huddle. And then the next day cramming ourselves into whatever the vehicle was, sometimes horse and cart, sometimes rickshaws, sometimes very occasionally you know, cars, ambassadors, uh, Marutis, you know, getting getting around the place, trains, buses, um, just getting to know each other, just having a wonderful time. And I've got a, a really sweet memory of an evening where myself and um, Purna, I think, were in a tea bar, you know, the programme was a few couple of hours away, and we were just relaxing, having arrived, just drinking tea in a in in a, in a calf, you know, in a roadside calf. And we were laughing and joking and I noticed that all the you know, all these people, all these men in the cafe, were looking at us, sort of indicating and smiling and often laughing at us, and I realized, Oh God, of course. You know, we we're, we're white people and Indian people and they'd probably never seen anything like this before because you know in the towns we were visiting you know tourists didn't come but it was i realized that it was only at that moment I, I had completely forgotten that there were indians and english people we were we had become so close i'd completely forgotten that we came from different countries and different cultures it was it was it was a, a wonderful experience and at the heart of it, you know this extraordinary figure, Banty. you know just every day you know preparing his talks, you know he would you know the whole thing was geared to keep him comfortable, to keep him functioning. He was getting throat in, you know, throat sores, he was getting slight chest infections, but there was only one night where he didn't perform. You know, which is extraordinary, and I was lucky. It was it was in Ahmedabad that night, and it uh, was one of the talks he was due to give in Ahmedabad. He couldn't do it, so he asked Lokomitra to give the talk instead. And everyone went off to the to the program, and I stayed at home to look after Banti, or stayed at wherever we were staying to look after Banti. And I was making him some hot milk, and uh, we had this conversation, which I which which I, I, you know, I've often reported because it was. Uh, I just think it says something about Banti. He was, we were talking about his his very first experience where he discovered he was a Buddhist, on on hearing or reading the the, the Diamond Sutra for the first time. You know, he he had read Isis Unveiled by Madame Blavatsky, and that had made him realise he wasn't a Christian. And then about a year later, he read the Diamond Sutra. He was sixteen, and a boy from Tooting, and he read the Diamond Sutra, and immediately felt an understanding of the absolute core of the dharma and he said to me as i was handing him his milk he said we were talking about that experience he said do you know that was well what would it have been it would have been something like 30 years before maybe 40 years before he said none of my scholarship none of my practice, none of my involvement with any other Buddhists has ever led me to question the validity of that initial insight. And he then sort of laughed, he said, gosh, that's quite a claim to make, isn't it? (laughs) You know, the the heart of the whole operation was this extraordinary figure, you know, Banti. who, you know, I'll be honest, you know, at times when we were struggling to sleep, struggling to keep up, you know the transport was difficult the food was difficult so many things were breaking down it wasn't an easy tour and at the heart of it you know everything was dedicated to keeping banties running smooth and well oiled so that he could write his talks on, on on the hoof you know sometimes you could sort of think oh god why is you know why can't i be as comfortable as him just once you know you and yet there at the heart of it was this extraordinary man performing this you know, quite extraordinary feat of giving these talks, of having this effect on people. You know, just moving at times, I mean strange, one got used to it, to see people you know, prostrating in front of him, touching their heads to his feet, um, rushing up to him, complete strangers. As he made his way down from the stage after giving a talk, a complete stranger would rush up to him with a baby and say, "Please give my baby a name." And Banty would just look at the baby and give it a name. Off they'd go. You know, <laughs> you know and there's what you know. There's a lot of uh, what would they be? Thirty-four-year-old know, you know, people around, you know, with a name. Now that Banti gave them, and not only that, but there's quite a lot of order members around now, even preceptors around now in India who were at those talks as as children, or as teenagers, and they'll, you know, we'll we'll compare notes when I've when I've met them in India or at um, Atish or Padmaloka on, on a, a preceptor's meeting or something, you know, we'll compare notes. Oh, you were at Ahil Ashram that night. Oh, you were in Sholapur at that talk, you know, and. Uh, yeah, i remember it vividly. And that was them, you know, their first glimpse of Banti, maybe their first encounter with, with, with Buddhism being properly taught. You know, just uh, a wonderful thing to have been part of. As I said a minute ago, you know, we, we became very close, but we did come from different cultures. And I'm just going to tell one story, which I feel very affectionate about. It involves Chandra Bodhi. Uh, he's been over here. Some of you might have met Chandra Bodhi. He, he's, um, he's getting on now. Um, I think he now lives at the Mahavihar in, in Pune. We were walking from one place to another in a town called Latour during the, uh, during the tour, and he'd been reading Shabda. And I don't think Mangala will remind me saying this. That Mangala's been out for so long, he's almost in. Um, LAUGHTER Chandra Bodhi said to me, he says, What is this I'm reading about Mangala being homogenous? <laughs> I, said, I said, The word is homosexual. He said, Well, what, what is that? I said, Well, it means his sexual preference is, is, is not for women, but for men. And Chandra Bodhi looked at me, his eyes almost came out of his head. He said, How can that be? <laughs> I said, Well, it beats me. Oh, yeah. You can ask him. And we walked for a little way, you know, in silence. And you looked very thoughtful. And then he said, but tell me, Nagabodhi, what does homogenous mean? <laughs> <laughs> but it was lovely. You know, we came from very different worlds. But <laughs> there was just a lovely, easy closeness between us, you know, with you know, doing something difficult and demanding. Um, and actually quite heroic, you know, when I look back at those people, you know, that some of them had already given up their jobs. And in India, you know, that's not something you do lightly. I mean, I gave up my job, but I was young. I didn't have children. I wasn't married. I had savings. After all, I was English. So if necessary, I could have gone on the dog. But there were people there who'd given up their jobs to, 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 to throw themselves into this very new movement. You know, with no obvious hope or clarity around long-term security. You know, and there they were. I mean, extraordinarily heroic. You know, again and again, I'd be so impressed by what they were doing and by the sort of fire that burnt in them—the fire of their own practice, their Dharma practice, but also the fire of bringing around about a revolution. So many of them had the most appalling stories of things that had happened to them in their childhood or to people they knew or things that they knew about that happened in in nearby villages of rape, of beatings up, of people being burnt alive. I mean, the most terrible stories. You know, they really were determined to make a difference and this was the way they were going to do it. They passionately believed that Dr. Ambedkar had led them down an effective path of change and meeting Banti, meeting us, had convinced them, you know, that yes, there really was something in this that they wanted to to, to follow. And, you know, years and years later, here they here they are, you know, many of them still around, some of them, you know, some of those people I travelled with back in, 1981, 82 have died since a few have left the order for other reasons but you know they've created an enormous movement i mean there are now many many centers in maharashtra and elsewhere the conversion movement seems to be continuing you know there are, there are so many things now to witness the the scrap of land that i that, that i was taken to visit on my first um, time in india in 1982 81 82 i was just shown a piece of land that we were thinking of acquiring to have a retreat center this was at a place called bhaja and i've got a lovely photograph of a woman whose husband had just died holding a photograph of him and she was about to sell us this land two years later when i went back or three two or three years later when i went back Um, you know that land was you know had a building which was already being used for retreats for about 40 50 people at a time it's now an enormous complex you know with many rooms many big shrine rooms i mean just the most extraordinary uh, beautiful facility that we have and it's just one of many fantastic facilities we have in india it's Grown, there are greater numbers, there are more facilities, more institutions, and of course, you know, with the passage of years, and India being India, it's also grown in complexity. Um, things have moved on, and somebody else can come and give you a talk sometime about how the Indian movement is now. Nineteen eighty-two, you know, when I was there that first time, you know, is a long time ago, but you know already, Banty was beginning to feel the effort. I have uh, a very touching memory that in Panchkani, you know, a few days after he'd arrived in the country, at the outset of, of this very demanding tour, Lokomitra and Banti withdrew to a room in, in, in a sort of bungalow to discuss the coming tour. And I just happened to be sitting near the window. And I didn't deliberately eavesdrop But at one point I heard Banti say, and this was such a Banti phrase, he said, you know, Lokomitra, I'm reluctantly coming to the conclusion that I have to face the fact that I'm perhaps not as young as I used to be. You know, this was already, you know, all those years ago, that was 40 years ago. And he was already beginning to feel his age. So... If you catch a sighting of Banty now, and if you see Banti as he is now, very frail, perhaps you know, more or less sightless, being helped by somebody, you know, around the fields at Hadistan, or maybe even being helped onto a stage at a convention to just acknowledge the crowd, you know, you you can forget, you know, what he's done, what he's achieved, you know, even in in that one. Part of his life because well you know we we all know about other parts of Banty's life particularly the part that he's lived with us and that we've shared with him but you know if if you catch a sighting of Banty now you know this old frail man quite beset by some of the difficulties of old age with his sleep very irregular even his moods at times being quite irregular you know don't forget you know the fire that just burnt there for many 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 years and actually that still burns because he is still as soon as he has a good night's sleep you know he's up and at it and talking to somebody sharing his ideas and opinions and eager to play his part i thought i'd i'd end with just one little bit of a reading from the book that i wrote i went back um in 1985 uh, to write a book about the tour and about you know, my experience of of the Dhamma revolution, um, I'd hoped I'd be able to, and I'd um, even discussed the idea with Banty when we were back in England. Um, by then, I was ab- you know absolutely immersed again back in Winter's Publications and its affairs, and I said to Banty, "You know, it's something I want to do," and he said, "Well, it would be a great idea, but uh, let's see if you ever have the time." And um, I got a letter from Loka Mitra about a year later just saying you'll be pleased... No, it was a telegram. Saying you'll be pleased to know that Banti announced to a crowd of 5,000 people in Worley, which is a slum locality in, in, in Bombay. He said you'll be pleased to know that last night Banti announced to a crowd of 5,000 people that you're coming out next year to write a book about Dr. Ambedkar and the Dhamma revolution. <laughs> so being a good boy... I did. Um, the book's been out of print for a while, but you can read it because it's on uh, it's on Bhante's website. It's all there as a PDF. Um, I thought I'd just give you a little glimpse. There was a figure called Damarakshita who had got to know Banti when he was very young and had been Banti's first translator. You know, back in back in the very early days of the conversion movement, and Damarakshita was the first. Man to be ordained into into, our, into the Indian wing of our order. Uh, he, he's died. He's died since, but um, he was there. Damarakjiter was actually the only order member back in the days when I was there in eighty two who'd been present at Doctor Ambedkar's mass conversion ceremony, and he was the only person I knew who was there that night when Doctor Ambedkar died and when Banti spoke you know to 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 these huge crowds to try and reassure them i'll just i'm just going to read you a little extract you know from my book and and it's a kind of uh, a record of a conversation i had with with so talking about you know what happened after uh, after ambedkar's death during the 4 days that followed the traumatic event damaracchita had attended a few of Sangharakshita's 35 talks including the one where he'd addressed the crowd from the seat of a rickshaw. Sangharakshita's talk had made an enormous impact, he told me, not just because Sangharakshita had been the only man able to speak at all, but because he spoke about Buddhism. At that moment, we didn't want to hear about politics or anything of that sort. People were very much afraid that Baba Seb's death, Babaseb Ambedkar's Am- death, might be some kind of punishment there was a conversion, yes and then suddenly there was a death, yes people had great fear they wanted more than anything to be given some confidence in the Dhamma and so he goes on to say how Banti's talks then and and subsequently had given them that confidence but because the Ambedkarite movement very soon got beset by factional politics um, Banti had made a really important point of staying when he visited the plains to to teach Buddhism, to the new Buddhists, to, 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 to stay with his Parsi or even Hindu friends rather than with his Buddhist friends because there was too great danger of being seen as being factional. So, where is it? To obviate the risk of appearing partisan, he stayed with Parsi friends in Pune and accepted invitations to speak on any platform. I wondered whether this had ever struck anyone as eccentric. Oh no, Dhammarakshita laughed. None of us had any money or food, so he was doing us a favour by finding his own lodgings. Anyway, so long as we could use him, why should we worry where he stayed? But didn't it seem strange that one of the most prominent monks on the scene should have been an Englishman? Why should it seem strange? Very few monks were Indian anyway. They came from Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka. Naturally, we assume they came from England also. In those days, Sangharakshita was a powerhouse of energy. As soon as he arrived in a new town, he would head straight for the stage to give his talk, walking so fast that none of the organisers could keep up with him. He was happy to travel long distances in bullock carts, he could eat any kind of food and sleep on coarse stubble in the open fields. It was quite remarkable not even our local bhikkhus could do that. He would go anywhere, speak to any kind of audience, always without notes. Never once did Dhammarakshita see him get angry when things went wrong, not even when they found themselves forgotten and deserted by the organisers after a talk, miles from anywhere, with no means of getting home. But then, pondered Dhammarakshita, who could he get angry with? I was the only one there, and it wasn't my fault. (laughs) Had he, I wondered, ever held Sangarakshita in awe? How could I? We were just two friends. He was just he, and I was just I, yes? There was never any feeling that he was the boss and that I was just the translator or anything like that. No, he was the buffalo and I was the cart. Where he went, I went. But I never felt any kind of special respect for him. Suddenly, squawking with laughter, Dhammarapjata rolled over onto his back. But don't you see... That's always been my problem. <laughs>